am I in France? In your own kingdom, sir. And now, do not let me change your kingdom. No, I will be the pattern of all patience. I will say nothing. Am I in France? In your own kingdom, sir. Do not abuse me. Hey everybody, it's the Cannon Cruisers. I'm JD. And I'm Randy. And today, um, I need to remind you that it is five years after the uh, fall of mankind, after the explosion at Chernobyl, and that all culture uh, has disappeared. And that today we are checking out Jean-Luc Godard's King Lear from 1987. And once again, we need to remind you that it is five years after the fall of man in the apocalypse due to Chernobyl and that all culture has disappeared, uh, but everything else has returned. And because of that, you might think that this weird guy named Shakespeare's works might not exist anymore. And also, caca, caca, caca. Which is why this very movie is not actually based on a play called King Lear by William Shakespeare. Lear's Shadow. Um, so, would you like to give a plot summary of the film that we just watched? Okay, the plot we just watched, King Lear from 1987... No, no, Jean-Luc Godard's King Lear, we want to make that clear. ...is about Jean-Luc Godard's crawling up his own ass and dying. Okay, so what the movie is actually about is a want... Chernobyl disaster... And five years after said Chernobyl disaster, art, as Randy said before, was completely destroyed. So they hire William Shakespeare the Fifth. No, 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 no. William Shakespeare Jr. Specifically Jr. The Fifth, the descendant of the Billy Shakespeare, who wrote the great plays of English of England. Yes. Um, and he to has, recreate them. He has to recreate them by walking across the land. and For the Canon Culture Division. Yes. And now, if you just heard that description, you might be saying, okay, that doesn't sound a whole lot like the actual play of King Lear. And you'd be correct. Not only is it not really like the play of King Lear, it's not really much of a story either. Kaka, kaka, squawk, sound of waves. So this movie is a... French New Wave film. A French New Wave adaptation of mm -hmm. Shakespeare's play. Woo. And this is one, unlike some of the other ones we've covered this season, we actually could have covered earlier. We just did not want to. I have somehow <laughs> found... Okay, so... Yeah, so as JD said, it, this is... Oh my god, it's one of the most confusing, obtuse, like, unpenetratable films ever made. The film literally be begins... With a very poor recording of an answering machine or something. Yeah. Of a three-way conversation between Menahem Golan, uh, Godard, and his agent, and somebody else. And telling him, to, you better start getting started on this. Stop delaying this film. We want it out by cans. Mm -hmm. So, Godard goes and goes, you know what? I don't like being told what to do. So, I am going to make the most obtuse, impenetrable film known to man. Mm-hmm. 
And that's exactly what he did. And more interestingly enough, so let's start, let's read out the cast here. Uh, and, and and then we'll go into it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So Menahem Golan, because at the beginning, uh, Jean-Luc Godard, mm-hmm. Tom Luddy, like those are the three in the recordings. Mm-hmm. Immediately to a following scene yeah. between Norman Mailer playing as uh, Godard actually put as incomprehensibly and sarcastically as possible in his voiceover, the great writer, yeah. uh, and his daughter, Kate Mailer, playing basically the versions of themselves named after themselves. Yeah. Uh, talking about the writing of the play and how they want to, well, how he's been hired to do an adaptation of Lear and how he thinks it would work better if it was, or not better, like how a modernization would work better if it was a mafia story mm-hmm. starring Don Liaro. And they do this scene in three different takes. They show of the same take. Mm-hmm. And then these two characters remain throughout the movie but they suddenly be are played by um, Burgess Meredith and Molly Ringwald uh, playing the characters, but now they're playing Don Liero and Cordelia um, and having the same conversation again, but this time a fictionalized versions of themselves that are then overheard by Mr. William Shakespeare Jr. V, the descendant of William Shakespeare, which they make us all the time know this, played by Peter Sellers, uh, who you might know, like avant-garde art and film and all that stuff. Um, A different Peter Sellers than the one you might be thinking of. And then you get other people such as uh, Leo Carax and somebody you, everybody knows, Julie Delphi. Mm -hmm. And Woody Allen is in this film for like, uh, for five minutes. Um, And the movie is just a series of scenes that tries to look at symbolism and it tries to be philosophical and it's trying all these different things and throwing at it all as and i'm gonna put a big swear here a big fuck you to the canon film group for annoying godard (laughs) and trying to make him rush and it's a but everything i've read on this film today um makes it seem that godard is so hard to work with because uh, the original script was going to be what Mailer was talking about with his daughter in the film. Let me tell, put it this way. And if, Godard shot it into a garbage can and made this. If I was in a Cannes when this movie was premiered and they threw, rightfully, threw tomatoes at the screen, I would have got up from the audience. That's an urban legend. Walked over to him and kicked him squaw in the nuts. So, like, do you know the fuck you, Miss, Mr. Godard? I would give it back to you. Kaka, kaka, sound of waves, crow sound. This uh, movie was a total waste of time in every single way. This was like journey to the center of the earth, waste of time level. That movie wasn't even really a movie. It was a bunch of scenes that they just threw together and, and made into a movie. That's what this was. It's the same thing. This is just one big humongous prank on everybody. And it sucks. Holy cow, was it one big prank. And it had a budget of $1 million. And you didn't see any of it in the movie. I'm going to assume he just pocketed it because this is supposed to be the post-apocalypse. But... Okay, so it's important to remind you, Jay, that this is five years after the Chernobyl apocalypse. Yes. A catastrophe at Chernobyl in which everything came back to normal except that we lost all culture. So let me give you... Kaka, kaka, ocean sounds. to this a little bit of homework... Go look at what actually happened in Chernobyl and look what it was at like five years after that happened. That's not what this is. <laughs> this is like nice blue skies, lush green grass and forests, nice chopped wood and cabins, though, though, cars everywhere. 
he was ahead of his time because if you do go to Chernobyl now, all you see is lush greenery and forest and mutated animals and uh and and a lot of radiation and 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 and, and nature taking it over where no man can enter um so yeah like i said norman mailer left this film in a huff uh godard shot out his script completely um <laughs> uh, the movie was intended originally intended to have mailer playing lear uh as don liaro in his original script uh and Woody Allen playing the fool. They were supposed to be the top part of the film. Um, and then this is also all going to be, uh, what, what, what do you call it? When, when, when you're on the stand and you're just telling a story, but you don't have any definitive proof behind it. Speculation. Speculation maybe, or, um, conjecture, conjecture. but according to a New Yorker article, mm-hmm. um, written by Molly Ringwell, talking about her time working on this film, yeah. she met, uh, Mailer, Mm-hmm. At, at some sort of social function and she's told him that she was in Lear and he took her off and went on a rant and told her that the whole reason that Godard is an impossible person to work with can't believe he shot out his script and that he was po- and that Godard was pushing a incestuous angle between oh, King was. Lear and Cordelia um he definitely was but at the same time still using the character's name of Norman Mailer and Kate Mailer because his actual daughter because um, that's what they're credited as and, and named and and that he w- didn't want anything to do with that and he walked out and like I said they shot out the script and then they made it even more um, French New Wave than it already was going to yeah. be. It's, um, it's just a series of random scenes. There's there's no real inconnect, interact, interconnectivity except that there is. He's going to a certain place and they're writing the script. That's about it. That's pretty. That's it. There's nothing else to it. This movie is more about making the movie itself, and, and more. It's like you see like clear uh, delineation between who is supposed to be the representative of Godard, who's who's the representative yeah, of the, Canon, the person who's he plays one. in the movie, maybe. Oh yeah, but it's also William Shakespeare, the, the junior, the fifth. Uh, yes, of course, because he has to relate he, himself his, to William Shakespeare, his, who's who's a uh, <sighs> who's the descendant and the one that's to carry on the legacy, 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 legacy of of this cultural uh, whatever you want to have it. It's like this movie is one of the most bizarre canon films also most of the versions out there are really badly mixed including the version we oh watched. you want to talk about versions okay so availability of this film nigh like it doesn't exist like barely exists there's a dvd that was released in 2013 ish maybe uh italy only in, in comprehensible subtitles that's not the, that's we didn't watch it with subtitles uh Probably and, and not not really available anywhere else so mm-hmm. I literally found this on the Internet Archive, and this is probably the best version I could find it. Mm-hmm. And then now we're talking about, so what are some of the issues with it? It's like sound, right? Visual, right? So would you believe me that the version we saw is even more suboptimal than we thought? Because the DVD that this was ripped from mm-hmm. had the wrong aspect ratio. It was shot, uh, it was meant to be displayed at four by three. So we had the tops and the bottom crop, but we're seeing further out on either side. It was never meant to be a 16 by uh, by two or whatever the standard yeah. cinema uh, widescreen is. It was meant mm-hmm. to be a four by three, as all Goddard films. And a lot of the problems with our understanding of what they're saying uh, changes because this movie is meant to be played 
in a stereo environment with the sound being everywhere. But what happens is because they smushed everything over, you have all these overlapping, uh, them talking over each other on purpose, but you're supposed to be hearing like, okay, this is coming from somebody from the That's, side. It's supposed to be voices in your head there almost. There are still problems and with And it makes it even harder to hear because they're being all smushed together. And also, it doesn't help as if you haven't figured out, you're constantly getting throughout the films and this is supposed to be like, not. it's supposed to be like the lowest track but ends up being the loudest track when it pushed the sound of seagulls and ocean water and animals and a crow that's in every single freaking Goddard film. Yeah. The biggest issue with the movie on the sound front is all not just that bad mixing thing, but also the fact that you have sometimes three different tracks playing at the same time at the exact people talking at the same time and you're supposed to be able to hear something but you and have it, no idea and what's it's meant going to be on. at stereo sound so it's like a lot of the times like some of these tracks like you might be hearing them at the front talking like okay they're doing the dialogue but the dialogue is not meant to be clear you're supposed to be hearing the narrator over them because that's just them talking over them and then the diegetic thing of the goblins oh yeah the goblins let's talk about but the on goblins top of that, uh you're not supposed to be hearing what they're saying because but, they're meant to be like you're meant to be going crazy on top of that though like at least a good portion of the people who are narrating you can't understand what they're saying because of the way they talk like Godard is one of them, so is Norman Mailer. You can't understand what they're saying unless you really focus, which is hard to do when there's two other tracks playing in your ears. And Godard goes out and speaks with the thickest Jean-Luc Godard accent that you can get. Um, I like when he farted. Well, like I said, as I told you before, that is actually them thematically relevant to Lear itself because there are a lot of fart jokes in Lear, uh, including straight directly from Lear. So it's, which a good is, it's a good thing he only did one in the entire movie. Two, actually. Um, uh, there was a second one apropos of nothing, but only one done by Professor Pluggy, who was, was Jean-Luc Godard. Um, man, this film is like a crazy, probably one of the craziest canon films just because of that. Like, we actually have more stereo sound for this podcast than what we listen to. To be perfectly fair, we probably deserve it more than the movie. And we're going to flatten it afterwards because it doesn't really matter because we I'm don't just, care about quality. But. We're just going to put in random seagull sounds in there just to really stir stir at home just, just how great good sound mixing is and how much fun it is just to not be able to hear anything. As you can tell, this has really burned JD's cannolis. Um... But yeah, the movie ends up being just really weird. Uh, I'm actually going to go refer to a little bit of the, the Wikipedia just to give it an, you an idea that they actually had to give you literary sources uh, in the discussion of this film because they refer to uh, things outside of Lear. And so you get this metatextual uh, aspect to the film that I don't really care about. Um, Nobody cares about I it. I do and I don't. It's like it, I, I, it took away a little bit from my enjoyment of it. But they literally broke down According, these are all taken from the MGM DVD. This is how the MGM DVD breaks it down chapter by chapter. You have mm -hmm. the opening sequence. Yeah. Then you have a sequence about William J Shakespeare Jr., the fifth. And then you have a sequence called The Goblins. Not like you would ever know because there's no... No, apparently there was a line. No, there's a line saying that... Uh, what's that's the exact not, line? That's not, um, that's not good enough. That's literally not that, good that the, He calls them the goblins as the secret agents of human memory. and it's But it's only a passing line that we don't really hear because of the... Ah! Sound well, he doesn't waves. repeat it 26 times like the other one, so it can't be important, can it? And then the next track is called Plato's Cave. Oh, so God. as you know, we start getting into uh, philosophy here, uh, which then segues into snakes, um, followed by montage, uh, which is just a weird montage with 
talking about which with references to the, to the book of revelations and to cardboard plastic dinosaurs in a box um followed by endings which is literally three endings because when it gets there it goes journeys into lear three times and we get three separate endings one of which ends with freaking Woody Allen, Mr. Alien uh, in New York, uh, editing the film together. Yeah, uh, Lear has three daughters. Dude. Yeah, that's what? literally it. Wow. That's Yeah, that's literally that's the play on that. So impressive. Um, wow. And you can tell Woody Allen just looks so unimpressed to be in the, here. Uh, like he has nothing, no idea what's going on. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he was just saying the lines like everybody else in the movie going, this is going to make sense in editing. It's not going to make sense in editing. Uh, also from, from what he had said, hearsay, that's what I'm thinking I'm saying, is that he, uh, he's allegedly said that Goddard shot, like, directed him in his pajamas. Like, Goddard basically did not care. Just like, oh yeah, here, no, 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 give you my thing. This is one of the reasons I can't take the movie seriously, because he clearly didn't take it seriously himself. There's nothing here. Like, the, the main issue with the movie is that everything you've mentioned and all these things are like, there's nothing inherently bad about any of this stuff. But it's not in service of anything. Oh, no. There's nothing in service of anything. Oh, no, JD. It is in service to something. And that service is flipping a giant seagull at uh, Menahem Golan. (laughs) You wanted to rush me? You wanted to rush me? How dare you? Does that make the movie any better to watch? Does Does that make it enjoyable to watch, Randy? Does that make the movie enjoyable? This thing... Hey, look, he made a miserable movie that God, made Goddard, Goddard that literally sounds like the person that, um, what's his name from, from the Lord of the Rings, the actor who played Gollum used as his, yeah. as his model for the voice of Gollum because, because he talks like this for a lot of the time. Look, he made a shitty movie to make Canon mad. Does that make it better for the audience to watch at any point? No, it doesn't. So, and that is my biggest problem with the movie. With that said, my highlight of the film is that Molly Ringwald was a total dear. She was great in the film. She was the most interesting character, most interesting actress. uh, And that's saying a lot. And I also like the random goblin that just suddenly walked out from behind Meredith Burgess and went, Clear shadow. End scene. And, and it's like, I like that part. That That's kind of funny. Um, I like that there were goblins in the movie that just dressed like normal Hollywood actors. That was really believable. Well, well you got to understand that one of the goblins is actually dressed like Jean-Luc Godard from another movie. Like, apparently they're dressed like characters from other movies that Godard's done. That's good. That makes it more enjoyable to watch the nonsense. Uh, like I said, it's, a, it's said, a really odd movie. What's your highlight of the film? I don't have one. <gasps> oh no. my god, people. Is he going to give it a, a zero? We'll find out in a moment. Um, then what's your low light of the film? The fact that it makes no sense. I already no. That's not that it doesn't make any sense. It's that I said everything about the movie is in service to anything, and what's in service to is a, is a middle finger to Canon Films, which is nice. But I'm still the audience who has to watch this piece of shit, oh. so it doesn't change anything. It's still unenjoyable. I to watch. can't wait for Austin Trunick's Volume Three of the Canon Film Guide because he's supposed to go into more depth on this film in there. Um, but oh, this is gonna, gonna have be to have something behind this movie because um, look, we've watched a lot of these sorts of like projects and like people going up their own ass, and some of them have been good, some of them have not been bad, but this one just felt like an ent- entire waste of time, and I hated every moment of watching it. And it wouldn't have been so bad if a, the whole thing wasn't hinging on 
but he was giving a finger to Canon Films. That doesn't matter to me. I'm still watching the movie. It's not enjoyable. So my low light of the film, and this is coming from somebody who went, who did liberal arts, is that this movie is so freaking pretentious uh, and up its own ass. Uh, it is, yeah. And that... A lot of the acting, while good, like I'm not going to Molly Ringwald, I'm talking like Peter Sellers, like his, his performance isn't that bad, but it's so over the top on purpose, I guess. That's um, that's but the but that's it. It's like like everything actually. They're either over the top or they're just like stock art film. That's acting. it. That's There's that's it. That, that's my complaint is that the film is very stock art film, and I'm not. I'm not. It's not. That's not really my genre. That's not really my bag, baby. As like, I'm not not really the art filmy not, person. Like the most art filmy film I've ever seen was like Le Jeté. No, I'm not going to say that there are no good like art films or new wave films or anything like that. I'm just saying this is not a good one. I'm not a good fan of new wave. I'm not. This that, is but, not. This is not a good example. I'm not a big of fan of, of the French new wave in general. It's like nothing has really interested me in that that thing. And once again, I'll say this that I've discovered is a phrase I say a lot. With that said, mm-hmm. I'm going to give this movie. And I want to hear JD get angry at me. Yeah. A three out of five. Because as much as it's up its own ass, there is something there that I have to recommend for people to watch. Because this movie is just so freaking insane and weird and weird. And there is... My, my, my literary student part of my brain wants to sit here and watch it again and start taking it apart and looking at, at the pieces and how it works. And... And think about it. But also, the only time I'll do that is I'll probably wait for an actual good version of this film to be released. It never will be, so I never will have to watch it. Ha ha ha. But, Hopefully not. But yeah, it's it's just... Yeah, I give it a three. It's like, I do recommend that people check it out because within the canon catalog... So we know that the canon catalog has its highs, its lows, and it hits like low low culture and high culture like it's try- tries to do that and this is very much them trying to get mm-hmm. a grasp at relevancy and and accolades and all that like look we work with Jean-Luc Godard she, no it's not just all Sam Furstenberg all the way down well, they, we worked with Jean-Luc Godard they've done that with many different people too um we worked we, we, we worked with uh uh Cassavetes it's like yeah. we did Cassavetes last film love, look look at us we're we're relevant love, we're real love streams now that's a, movie that's a good movie that wor- that's worthy of its praise yeah and and I get that, and and like I said, and within the canon catalog, I do have to recommend this as a watch, just because it's it is the most non-canon canon film that's saying fuck you to canon throughout the whole film, and the fact that being aware that it's a big fuck you to themselves, they still went ahead and released it for a week. Um, they probably lost about as much money they would have got it if it was a normal movie anyway, because. Well, Nobody was going to pay money to see on this. a million dollar, I mean, dollar really. budget. It made sixty thousand back. Um, well, yeah, and also depends on what they even spent the million on because I'm not convinced they spent it on anything. Location. Uh, basically, having to fly people out. I um, wouldn't guess that. It's just like I said. And I know you're giving it like a one or a two. I'm going to give it a one. I don't hate. I don't like this movie at all. It, it it literally made me feel worse watching it, and I hated every moment of it. I don't think there's any reason to watch this, especially if you've ever seen movies like this before. It's not going to tell you anything new or interesting. Now I'm going to give it an asterisk to everybody that this movie, if I could base it just on my personal experience, would be a four because watching JD break down, kind of like JD watching me break down on my first time watching The Apple, improved his uh, his like of the film. I that This plus JD, watching JD is the most enjoyable thing I've had done uh, in a while. Just because I, I wasn't expecting to like the film in any way, shape, or form, even without JD, but it's like, no, actually, there was something to it. So, but, but but 
watching JD suffer made it so much better. Caca, caca, sound of waves. So when you're factoring in our ratings, keep in mind what he just said, so you know what the movie is really like. No, no, that's that's, <laughs> that's why it's a three, not a four. Because uh, because like take out the JD factor, it knocks it down a whole point. Actually, it's more like a two point five, <laughs> but we don't do half points, so I'm I'm weighing it more on the higher side. Uh, just I would for give the it a zero, just to knock that down on purpose, just out of spite. Oh, but we don't do zeros either, so haha. No, we don't. So I'm just gonna give it a one and say it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I don't recommend you ever watching this, and that's and, all I'm gonna say about. And that. I recommend watching it. So the movie is so like unknown in Hollywood. I'm just gonna read uh, verbatim what it says on the IMDb wiki page. You might as well. When he was starting out, Quentin Tarantino claimed on his CV that he had appeared in this film. As he guessed, nobody would have seen it and know that he was lying. Nobody has seen this freaking film. Why? It's a great movie. Everybody should have seen it then, if it's so great. Even now, right? Another interesting piece of trivia on this one here is that they met Godard at a at the Cannes Film Festival, and they signed, Golan and Globus and Godard signed a contract on a freaking napkin to do this film. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming everybody was drunk. That sounds like that's. And then story. when the MoMA, the 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 what is it, the, the Museum of Modern Art, uh, mm-hmm. approached him to buy the napkin so that he can put it on display, mm-hmm. they said no. They were offered what was it? They were offered like ten thousand dollars just for the napkin, and they said no. It's just like no, no, no. This is my personal no, thing. Just no. But uh, yeah, Manaham Golem refused to sell a famous contract napkin for ten thousand US and asked for yeah. Like I said, it's 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 the movie is weird, and like I said, there is something there. But like I said, I'm also like in agreement with JD that it's not a great film. No, like I it said, might be in a way, but it's not a great film. Uh, if and, you and, like these sorts of movies, you might get something out of it. But for just a general audience, probably not. Especially if you uh, like Shakespeare, maybe if you even like Jean Luc Godard. Oh God, no! If you like Shakespeare, you're gonna freaking hate this film. This movie is like so like not for the Shakespearean uh, no, people. No, it was that period where they uh, were making all kinds of weird adaptions of Shakespeare and like, look, the the word the, this sentence means this, but we make it mean this now. And this is like all those adaptions from that time period. This is kind of in that ballpark, although it's just Godard trying to say things like, you know what, I'm going to put a little incest in here. You know, uh, Norman Mailer and his daughter. You know, that's interesting, right? No, King Shaming. That's, uh... Um... I mean, Duet for One was released by Canon. I mean, f- what was that one? Fool for Love? Is that the one I'm thinking of? What Fool for One, yeah. For Fool for Love, yeah. That's the one where it's revealed that they're, 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 they're siblings, half-siblings. Something like that, love. but yeah. Um, it's, so it's not exactly out of their ballpark, but yeah. Yeah, the, the whole movie is what it is. It's a very specific type of movie, and if you don't get into these types of movies, it's not going to change your mind. It's Like I said, it's not one of the top-of-the-line uh, versions of, like, a French New Wave film or anything like oh, that. Oh, God, no. It's not going to change your mind on anything. This movie is like a love-it-or-hate-it type of thing. It's like... It's it, definitely... No, actually, no. There, I was going to say there's no in-between, but I gave it a three. So <laughs> you it's like, are kind of in-between. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, it's like... It's like, you know, it's like yeah, it's like, literally, you're going to, like, hate this film, or you'll be like, oh, okay, it's like, it's fine. It's, mm-hmm. it's great. It's I, know, I, know, I, know, I know Ebert had a thing for the film, but I think it was more along the lines of me. I'm like, yeah, it's a three, three and a half. Uh-huh. Hmm. But it's like, it's not that bad. <laughs> but yeah. um, it, it tried something, and even if that something was just to say fuck you too Ken. which is pretty much the moral of the movie that's all you'll really get out of this one so like and, and i guess a fuck you to mailer 
<laughs> and anybody watching it. Um, because they kept they kept all the stuff they filmed with him in the movie. Yeah. All the takes. I can see why he didn't like him. I can uh, definitely I can definitely see it. I can definitely see it. Oh man. Not unjustified. Not unjustified. So if this just ends up being another like five minutes after this of uh, seagull sounds, I apologize. JD really loved that part of the film. That was the best part of the movie. No, I'm going to change that. That's going to be my highlight. It's just a bunch of seagulls randomly squawking. Oh, yeah. The other thing JD hated is that because he was trying to draw a uh, a, a line to the all the animal sim- symbology and symbolism in the, the works of Shakespeare, um, they just had random beast noises every once in a while throughout the film when humans were talking. Um, but we would also get the sound of the ocean at all hours of the day, anywhere, and the sounds of, of seagulls. And then at every scene, you'd get the frickin' uh, nuclear plant crow from the uh, Simpsons. Simpsons appear, uh, going, Ca-ca! Just because. Why not? All right, everybody, that's all we got to say about this one. And we'll see you next time when we continue our cruise through the Canon catalog. Goodbye! And you have to remember that this takes five years after a catastrophe at Chernobyl in which all culture was lost. And... Am I in France? In your own kingdom, sir. And now, do not change your kingdom. be the pattern of all patience. I will say nothing. Am I in France? In your own kingdom, sir. Do not abuse me.